Welcome to the Bibliophile Adventures. I'm Martin from South Carolina. Michael from Germany. I'm taking your introduction because I love it. Uh, in fact, this episode was inspired by Michael from Germany. Since he's doing his uh, D&D 5th edition episodes, he uh, mentioned Lovecraft in, in one of them. And I love Lovecraft. So I ran it by uh, Michael from Texas. And he's like, yes, do some Lovecraft. So I'll be doing Lovecraft today. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do Lovecraft differently. I think uh, most people are used to hearing about the Cthulhu mythology with uh, in relation to Lovecraft, and all that stuff is great. And I do plan on making this Lovecraft series of episodes for this podcast. But uh, I, I want to kick off doing something completely different, and I think uh, something that Lovecraft is not really. Well, acknowledged for it. I think he really deserves more praise for his dream cycle stuff over the Cthulhu mythology. And there's nothing wrong with the Cthulhu stuff, by the way. I, I love that stuff. In fact, uh, the Cthulhu mythology is what introduced me to Lovecraft. So I am not knocking it in any way, shape, or form. But I think there's something special about the dream cycle series of short stories, and they are short stories, because even though they do have uh, that definite Lovecraft voice, they're slightly different in the way that they're told because they're not horror stories, they're fantasy stories. And so I'm going to kick things off on this Lovecraft series, talking about one of my favorite Lovecraft stories of all time, and also maybe one of the shortest, uh, and that is The White Ship. Now, I do plan on talking a little bit about Lovecraft's life, I guess, and how that impacted some of the work that he was doing. And I'm going to do a little bit of that for this episode, but don't think that you're going to get a biography of H.P. Lovecraft. You can go read that for yourself if you want. Uh, But I do want to touch on some key points, which uh, I think will set the scene a little bit for why I enjoy the Dream Cycle stuff so much and why I think it may be some of his best work and some of his most underrated work. Uh, But also, not just in terms of Lovecraft, but how it's influenced other people. And uh, one person in particular that I'll talk about that I think his novels, his character that he's very famous for, uh, is key to Lovecraft mythology and is almost never discussed. But we'll we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. I do want to thank Michael from Texas for having me back on the show. I, I really enjoy the show. I love listening and I love having a forum to talk about something that I don't normally talk about. Uh, normally when I podcast, I podcast about comics and, and other nerdy stuff. And I don't have uh, a whole lot of avenue to uh, talk about books. And I, I love books. I've been reading since I was very young. Uh, my parents tell me I started reading when I was like three or four. I, I don't know if that's true. Uh, I like to think that it is because I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, in fact, Lovecraft started reading when he was three or four. So uh, I guess we have a connection there. I don't know. Uh, but we, we do have a lot of the same interests. So I, I can definitely see why I love Lovecraft so much. And uh, sure, there there's some issues with maybe some of Lovecraft's uh, viewpoints in life. And uh, I do think that in that regard, we do uh, separate quite a bit. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy over the years about uh, Lovecraft's uh, racist attitudes, for example, his, his attitudes towards uh, homosexuality. And uh, that's not something that I really care to focus on this episode either. 
I I try to be positive when I talk about these things, and this show is about talking about something that we love, and Lovecraft is something that I love. Uh, of course, horror has been a huge part of my life, basically my entire life. Uh, I remember one of the first films that I remember watching was like Nightmare on Elm Street, and I must have been like five or six years old. Uh, it scared the bejesus out of me. But it's led me into this crazy journey over my entire life where I, I really love to digest horror and analyze horror in, in different ways. And, you know, to be honest, Lovecraft is probably one of the fathers of modern horror, uh, whether you're talking about comic books or actual horror novels, TV shows, movies. A lot of folks were influenced by Lovecraft's work. I mean, Stephen King should be a, a pretty obvious choice. Um, Carpenter is an obvious choice. Wes Craven, all those guys have explicitly stated that they were influenced by Lovecraft's work. And of course, the way that those things come out may not necessarily appear Lovecraftian, but you can definitely see some of the influences. Uh, Of course, there are kind of more uh, people that are a little more tried and true, I guess, to what Lovecraft has done. There's been authors that have created entire universes based on Lovecraft stories uh, that kind of retell some of those uh, tales in like a cohesive universe, and those are really fascinating as well. I'm not really going to talk about that now because we're not talking about Cthulhu mythology, for example. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the dream cycle. And like I said, I don't want to talk about Lovecraft's life, but I think there are certain elements uh, very early in his youth that definitely play a role in the kind of stories that Lovecraft ended up telling. Uh, for example, the uh, the Night Gaunts, which are these demonic-looking gargoyle creatures uh, that Lovecraft loves to put in some of his stories. Uh, those were actually things that he saw when he was a kid. Uh, in fact, uh, I believe it was shortly after the death of his grandmother uh, that he began seeing these night gaunts. And he was scared at first, but eventually got over it. Uh, his his family was very eccentric. Uh, he came from a very wealthy family, and uh, his family ended up losing that fortune uh, so he he kind of lived on some of the inheritance that he received uh, from his grandfather and his uncle and his parents, um, because during his life, he was not a famous writer. Uh, in fact, most of his work while he was alive was published in pulp magazines. And uh, it's funny, I was actually just having a conversation on Twitter with somebody. Uh, Jay Loving uh, does the Best of the Rest podcast. They're doing an episode kind of focusing on pulp magazines. Uh, and it's really weird because I was rereading The White Ship to record this episode. And uh, and I was looking at some of the covers from Weird Tales because, oddly enough, one of these stories – well, many of these stories, but The White Ship in particular uh, was published originally in 1919 in a United Amateur uh, book. But it was republished in 1927, March 1927, in Weird Tales, Volume 9, Issue 3. And so I was looking at some of the uh, Weird Tale covers, and uh, I wish I could find the copy of that Weird Tale magazine. But the reason I bring this up is uh, because of Jay discussing that he was going to talk about uh, pulp magazines, I uh, sent him a link to pulpmags.org, which is a website that collects uh, public domain pulp magazines from, you know, the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So you can find some on there, not very many, but there are a collection of maybe a dozen weird tale books, 
Uh, a little bit later, I think the ones that they have start in the late 30s, uh, maybe even a little bit later than that. But I want to say like 36, 37 is uh, when they start. Uh, I think the collection they have might be like 37 to 39. Uh, again, it's just like 12 issues. But uh, it, it's cool to read that kind of stuff. And these are pulp magazines, so they're kind of like an oversized comic format, uh, but you're reading prose instead of comic book material. And uh, and I think it's really cool. And I'm sure there's still some magazines similar to this. Um, I don't know where you would buy them. I'm sure you can go to a bookstore and get them. But uh, these things were big back in those days. And uh, Weird Tales is actually very important in Lovecraft's life. They published a lot of his work. Uh, in fact, at one point, he was asked to be editor of uh, Weird Tales magazine, and he declined it. But uh, some of his other contemporaries and his friends actually published work on there as well. And uh, I'll talk about one in particular that I already teased, but uh, I want to describe the uh, white ship a little bit. Uh, in terms of biography, though, just to give a little added incentive, I mentioned him seeing these night gaunts. Uh, one thing that's really interesting is how some of his family members influenced some of the writings. And one I would say was his grandfather, because his grandfather was kind of – he was a rich guy. He had a bunch of businesses, which ended up failing, like I mentioned. But he, he was a well-traveled person. He traveled all around Europe and uh, had all these, like, cool trinkets and stuff around the house. Uh, I could imagine what, you know, Lovecraft's home would have looked like. Uh, when he was young, you know, this would have been the early 1900s. So I'd see a lot of like cool, kooky Victorian era type stuff just hanging around the house. And uh, his grandfather was a storyteller. So he used to tell him a lot of stories, some about his travels, some just made up stories. I, I assume most of these stories were made up uh, because it seems like some of them were very fantastical. And, uh, you know, in terms of Lovecraft, some of his early influences were like, you know, a Thousand and One Nights and, and books like that, um, which, of course, are very fantasy-based. And if you look at some of the Cthulhu mythology, you definitely see some of those early literary influences in what he was doing. And that's really interesting. Of course, he took it to a different level. And that was influenced by some of the happenstance that happened with his family, like them losing their money or, you know, he wasn't particularly close with his grandmother. But when she died, uh, he started seeing these creatures in the night and uh, his parents both suffer from, I would say, mental illness. I've heard different things regarding this. Uh, it seems like maybe his dad had a severe case of syphilis and ended up kind of losing his mind as a result of that. He suffered from... um Paralysis, like complete paralysis. Uh, and, and the reasoning is he had a very advanced case of syphilis. Uh, I also see a little bit of maybe like schizophrenia in his dad. Uh, of course, that could be caused by the syphilis. I, I, I don't know. It's possible, I assume. Uh, his mom kind of had a sad story as well. She ended up being institutionalized uh, when he was, I believe, like early in his high school career, uh, maybe even like as a junior or senior in high school. And... Uh, that, of course, had an, a large impact on him as well, uh, the fact that he couldn't really see his mom because she had gone completely crazy. Uh, both his parents were seeing things, uh, seeing creatures coming out of the dark and things like that. And, uh, of course, that kind of thing influences somebody like Lovecraft. And if you've ever seen a picture of him, he wasn't the most pleasant person to look at, we'll say. Uh, in fact, his his aunts often made remarks about his lack of good looks 
And uh, I'm sure that's got to have some kind of influence on a child growing up as well, uh, having to deal with that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, Lovecraft himself suffered from deep depression through several points in his life. Of course, I'm sure some of that has to do with some of the circumstances that he had to deal with, again, in terms of losing uh, the family and uh, money, uh, the family businesses, his writing career not necessarily taking off uh, until he died. Um, you know, he died pretty young. He was, I believe, in his early 40s when he died, uh, had intestinal cancer, and uh, as a result, didn't eat. So he was extremely thin when he passed away uh, from cancer. But he was always very curious, and he kept a journal, and he even kept a journal of the kind of emotions that he went through as he was dealing with this cancer. So a really interesting guy, uh, really sad story in terms of his whole family background and uh, the things that he had to deal with. Uh, he did have a lot of friends, a lot of friends that worked within the literary field. Uh, he was married, uh, kind of a happy marriage at first, and then not so happy towards the end. They ended up not seeing each other for years and eventually kind of divorcing. Um, so very sad life that he lived. And, uh, of course, he had interesting uh, ideals, we'll say. And, uh, again, I don't want to talk about that, but uh, you can easily find all that information as well. Uh, it's funny, too, because some of his best friends were gay, for example, and he had very strong feelings towards uh, homosexuality, like I said, and and somewhat racist. He he was totally against alcohol and, and drugs and sex, uh, very puritanical, I guess you could say. And it, it kind of makes sense, you know, growing up in Rhode Island and, you know, in the northeast of the U.S., uh, I can definitely see why he would have that kind of influence on uh, his outlook on life. Now, I picked that particular aspect of his life because I think that's kind of what relates the most to what would influence someone like Lovecraft to work on The White Ship in particular, because that's the book I'll be discussing, but also just the dream cycle in general. And uh, the dream cycle is really interesting to me. It uh, Again, it's not horror, it's fantasy. And if you're familiar with um, like Tolkien, for example, you might see some similarities in the way that uh, these stories are kind of told. Uh, one of my favorite Tolkien books is Silmarillion, and I know many people think I'm crazy when I say that, because it might be one of the driest of Tolkien's works. But uh, I find it so fascinating, like the level of detail that he goes into with history on Middle-earth, for example. Uh, so that's my favorite. And Lovecraft kind of has a similar idea in in how to describe the worlds that he is trying to get the reader to inhabit. And you definitely see that in all his works, uh, progressively more as he writes more and more. But to me, the way that those things are described within the Dream Cycle series is much more interesting. It's it's really beautiful. And uh, this, this story is actually in the public domain, so I'm going to read the story in its entirety at the end. Uh, if you don't want to hear me do that, then you can, of course, bypass that whole thing. Uh, you can go read it for yourself. I'll put a link. Uh, I'll have Michael put a link in the show notes. Uh, so you can uh, read this for yourself. But uh, the Dream Cycle is really interesting. It uh, It's very heavily inspired by the writings of Lord Dunsany, who was one of Lovecraft's uh, great inspirations, one of his favorite writers at the time. And uh, he ended up actually meeting Lord Dunsany um, at roughly around the same time that The White Ship was published. And The White Ship itself is actually 
the plot is loosely based on one of uh, this guy's works, The Idle Days on the Yawn. And uh, the whole thing kind of follows the same idea, and we'll get to the, the plot of the white ship. But uh, it basically has this nameless protagonist that gets on the ship. The ship is called the Bird of the River, and uh, kind of sails on the ship and goes into these fantastical dream worlds. Uh, in particular, he goes to Barwul Yan. Uh, that's why this is called the Idle Days on the Yan. Uh, Barwul Yan means the gates of Yan. And, uh, of course, Lord Dunsany is Irish, and so there's a lot of Celtic mythology that's brought around within these dream worlds, these mythical worlds that uh, Dunsany is writing about. And, of course, Lovecraft brought those into his stories as well. I mean, if you look at some of the names that are chosen for the old gods, for example, uh, you can tell they're they're Celtic names, or Celtic-inspired names, at least. And uh, a lot of that does have to do with uh, Dunsany's work, which he really enjoyed. And uh, I think that's awesome. Now, the dream cycle is not one thing, right? So, again, I'll be talking about the white ship for this episode, but it is not one thing. It's a collection of short stories and novellas uh, that were written uh, between 1918 and 1932. Uh, some of them not even published until the late 30s, even into the 40s, uh, in particular some of the more famous ones. And uh, they're all considered like stories within the dreamlands. And uh, the dreamlands is kind of this alternate dimension in which the world of dreams is a reality. So if you read, for example, like uh, Neil Gaiman's uh, Sandman or The Dreaming, that kind of book, uh, then you'll be very familiar with this concept. Uh, a lot of that is, of course, very much inspired by what Lovecraft is doing within these stories. Uh, some of the most famous ones would be like The Dream Quest of Anun Kadath and The Cats of Ulthar. Um, there's... I think about 15 to 20 different stories and novellas that take place within these dreamlands. And they don't all take place within the same place, obviously, right? I just mentioned Kadath and Uthar, uh, and there's several others that I'll mention as I read this story and I discuss the story. But the dreamlands are kind of divided into four different sections. Uh, I mean, I would say six, but the experts, and I'm no expert, say four. Uh, so you have East... North, south, and west, right? Makes total sense. Uh, the west contains the steps of uh, deeper slumber uh, and the enchanted woods. In the south, you have the Isle of Oriab and the Fantastic Realms. And the Fantastic Realms I'll be talking about uh, in terms of the white ship, because they are mentioned, of course. Uh, in the east, you have the Homo Salifus, uh, which is ruled by this king called Coronis, uh, who is the greatest of all recorded dreamers. And, uh, of course, the Forbidden Lands, those also come up within the White Ship. Um, in the north, you have uh, the Plateaus of Leng and the Man-Eating Spiders. So, uh, that's cool. I like that. We're not going to talk about that today, though, because that does not show up. And then, also, within the Dreamlands, you have the Underworld, which is kind of weird that in the Dream World you have an Underworld as well, but I guess everyone's got to die at some point, right? And, uh, of course, the Moon! And there's... There's b beings on the moon, uh, and you can get there by ship. So uh, really cool, fantastical stuff within the dreamlands. And uh, I highly recommend uh, many of these stories. I, I, of course, mentioned a couple already on here, uh, but there's there's plenty others. I really enjoyed The Doom That Came to Sarnath. Uh, I think that's really well done. The Nameless City is uh, really good. Asathoth is really good. Um, Silver Key and Through the Gates of the Silver Key. Uh, those are really interesting as well. I want to say the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath 
is generally published with the Silver Key stories. Um, you can, of course, find them, but they are available in that format as well. And many of these stories are public domain, so you can find them for free wherever you find public domain stuff. I'm actually reading the the story that I'll be reading, The White Ship. Uh, you can find it on just hplovecraft.com. Uh, if you want to read along when I read it, or if you want to read the story afterwards and you don't want to purchase a collected series of stories, uh, of course, there's no worry about translations or anything like that, like the last episode that I put out. Uh, so anything that you find, it's going to be the same manuscript in terms of reading The White Ship. So I guess I should describe a little bit what The White Ship is about. And I find it really interesting. It uh, it stars the protagonist. His name is uh, Basil Elton, and he is a third-generation lightkeeper. Uh, of course, I don't know any lightkeepers, but I'm sure in the early 20th century, uh, people might know lightkeepers. I guess so. This might the the analogy might work a little bit better, you know, a hundred plus years ago as opposed to now. But whatever. He's a third-generation lightkeeper. And uh, one night, while he's at the lighthouse, he sees a white ship off in the distance. And he's like, oh, that ship looks really interesting. I wonder what's going on there. So he walks out uh, to the ship on this bridge made out of moonbeams. Yes, a ship made of moonbeams. And remember, this is, this is a dream world. This is not reality. It's something that he's dreaming. Or maybe we'll see at the end. And so he gets on this bridge made of the moonbeams, and uh, when he gets on the ship, he sees the captain, who's this bearded fellow, and uh, he's like, I-, I want you to take me wherever you're going. And the captain's like, all right, we're we're going to the dreamlands, bro. He doesn't say it like that, of course. But uh, they get on the ship, and uh, the ship's cool. It's just a white ship, kind of like a ghost ship, uh, and it kind of – it's guided by this magical bluebird that flies above the ship. And uh, that's kind of interesting because uh, this is really weird too. Talk about serendipity or synchronicity, whatever the term is. I've been uh, I've been watching the. I subscribe to the Great Courses. Uh, I think it's fantastic. If you if you want to learn cool stuff, highly recommend it. And the the course that I just finished is about uh, ancient astronomy, and some of the stuff is kind of dull going through history, but uh, I really enjoyed some of the episodes. Uh, which described how ancient people figured out ways to navigate the globe, of course, without GPS, many times without maps. And uh, it's really fascinating. Of course, a lot of it has to do with being able to read stars and star patterns, um, knowing your longitude within an area, recognizing constellations and different star patterns across latitudes. Uh, really fascinating stuff. If you're if you're into that, I recommend it. That's kind of a side thing. Everything's a side thing. I don't know. In this case, though, the ship is being led by this magical blue bird, which of course makes sense, right? If we're going to a dream world, you're not just going to be able to navigate there by looking at the stars or looking at different landmarks. You have to have this magical creature to guide you into this magical realm. So they follow this bird. And uh, he he goes through many lands, and you'll learn more about them when I read the story, but I'll I'll go through a few of them. Uh, The first one he meets is Zar, which is uh, this green land, the the land of men's forgotten dreams, uh, where they become a reality. And I found found that whole thing fascinating. Um, There's not a whole lot more about Zar, but I would love to to learn more about this place. Uh, One of my favorite comic books of last year, 
is uh, very much influenced by Lovecraft and um, and some of his inspirations, like Lord Donsani, uh, is uh, Fearscape from Volcomics. And it follows this unreliable narrator who gets approached by, I want to say a fairy, but it's not a fairy, uh, to go into this, into the Fearscape, which is a realm where men's fears come true. And we do see a realm like that in here as well. And, uh, kind of go into this whole thing where like this guy becomes the, the savior of humanity, right? Because he has to learn to conquer men's fears within the fearscape. And, uh, of course, when he's able to do that, then that means that humanity is safe from falling into a certain trap, uh, that might lead him astray. I highly recommend Fearscape. It's a five issue miniseries from Bolt Comics. Uh, I believe the trade is already out. So if you're into Lovecraft and this kind of story, then I highly, highly recommend you check out Fearscape. Written by Ryan O'Sullivan. And, uh, the art is Andrea Moody, who is absolutely amazing. So this is the, the, the land of Zar. Uh, from there he goes into Zura, which is the land of pleasures unattained. And I want you to, as I mentioned what these realms are like, I want you to think about what that can mean, right? In terms of the very basic facts that I've given you on Lovecraft's life, uh, but also with whatever familiarity you might have on some of other works by Lovecraft. But again, Zura, the land of pleasures unattained, which is a beautiful place, right? When he's sailing through, he looks over and it's just a beautiful city uh, filled with splendor and it, something's wrong with it. And he can't figure it out why, but then he realizes that it just smells putrid, like everything is just dead. And uh, that's that's really interesting, a really interesting commentary. Uh, and, of course, Lovecraft had some uh, philosophical ideas on the decline of the Western world. So that makes perfect sense to sail through this place where everything seems so beautiful and perfect. But behind the scenes, it may not be as it appears. Uh, from le- there, he goes to the land of Sonia Nil. And uh, this is the land of fancy. And this is where he decides to live... For almost an eternity, really. He, he stays there for ages and ages in this paradise. It's a beautiful place. He's happy there. He can do what he wants. And of course, being the land of fancy is kind of where an author, I would say, would want to be, right? A place where anything you imagine comes true. That would be a paradise for him. But through the ages, he hears of this land called Cathuria, and he really wants to go there. Cathuria is the land of hope. He wants to know what this place is all about. So he goes to the ship and he talks to the, the captain. And he's like, hey, I want to go to Cathuria. And the captain's like, look, that's that's not a good idea. I mean, if you want to go to Cathuria, I'll try to take you there. I don't know exactly where it is. No one really knows. But we can try to go there. I've heard stories of how we can get there. But I'm going to warn you, you probably don't want to go there. And I think that's really interesting. And it says a lot about Lovecraft's life in general. And maybe it's not fair to, I guess, put words into this guy's life, try to explain this guy's life, who I obviously never met. Uh, but I've read a lot of his work, and I always find it interesting with how it is that authors are able to create certain worlds and why certain stories work better than other stories do. And I think with Lovecraft in particular, his personal life definitely played a very large part in all his stories. Uh, definitely in the Dream Cycle stuff, but even in the Cthulhu stuff. 
uh, played a, a key role in that. And, and it's interesting that, you know, he finds this land of fancy where he's, he's perfectly satisfied. He's happy. He's living in paradise. He can do whatever he wants. He can make every one of his dreams come true. And yet, even there, he's not fully fulfilled because he hears of this land of hope. And what does that mean? Why would he want to go to the land of hope when he has everything he needs? And maybe that's one of Lovecraft's things, right? I mentioned before how he wasn't, he was totally against drugs and alcohol and homosexuality and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that's kind of a cautionary tale that he's trying to bring within the story of the white ship where, you know, like be happy with what lot has been given to you in life. Don't try to go for more because if you go for more, then maybe things won't work out the way you want. Why ruin this perfection that you've achieved with wanting more? If you want more, you're going to fail, right? And maybe he sees this as some kind of statement on hubris and and being egotistical. And I, I could definitely see that. I don't necessarily agree though, right? I think sometimes we we do settle in our in the way that our life has developed, right? Maybe you, you're married and you have kids and you have a great job and a car and a house and a dog and whatever else, right? Everything you ever wanted. But something inside you is like, hey, I want more. Like, this is great, but this can't be all there is. And in Lovecraft's opinion, I think what he's saying is there may be more, but you shouldn't try to go for that. Because when you achieve this kind of perfect life, maybe that's where you need to be and where you need to stay and just enjoy the happiness that's given to you within that moment. So I think that's kind of interesting. I think that's where we differ in our perspectives on life. And of course, you can go check out my previous episodes on the Upanishads where I talk a little bit about that kind of stuff. Uh, you don't have to if you're not into philosophy. But uh, really interesting stuff that Lovecraft is saying here. And uh, of course, he's like, look, Captain, I don't care about any of this stuff. I want to see this land of hope. I want to know what it's about. He's like, you sure? Nobody ever comes back. Yes, I'm sure I want to go. And so they go. Let me take a sip of my tea here. In celebration of uh, Lord Dunsany, I'm drinking some uh, black Irish tea. It's one of my favorites. It's uh, it's great for recording because it, uh, it clears your throat quite a bit. So Basil and the captain and the white ship sail off. Uh, to try to find the land of Cthulhu, and uh, unfortunately, they don't find it. When they get to where they think they're near the land of hope, uh, it turns out that they're not anywhere near it. They're actually at the end of the world, the edge of the world, and uh, the ship falls over the edge of the world and uh, and crashes. And that's when Basil wakes up, and he is passed out on the rocks near the lighthouse and uh, he looks over and there's a piece of white timber uh, which you can assume of course as the reader that maybe it's the white ship that has been destroyed uh, as he woke from his dream and uh, there's a dead bluebird next to this white piece of timber so some some nice allegory there uh, in terms of referencing the the story of what came before it and then of course he's a lightkeeper remember that's his job. His job is to make sure that ships are able to sail safely through treacherous waters. And he fell asleep. And he knows it hasn't been very long. It could only be a few minutes. But he looks up, and the lighthouse light is no longer lit. That's when he realizes that by falling asleep, 
he has failed to perform his duties, the duties that his family has performed for decades and decades in this place, and the ship has been shipwrecked because he wasn't paying attention, because he wanted more out of his life than what he had. So a really cool, interesting allegory, I think, here. Really beautiful. Uh, I'm going to read the story here in a minute, and uh, I'll do my best to make it sound as beautiful as I hear it in my head. But uh, again, this is one of my favorite stories and really worth reading. Uh, again, I highly recommend the entire dream cycle of stories. Uh, they're all fascinating, and you know they influence a lot of people. And I referenced one before. Uh, that person is Robert E. Howard, who of course created Conan the Sumerian, or Conan the Barbarian, as you might know him nowadays. And uh, if you look at some of the places that Conan travels through uh, in his tales... Uh, they're very much inspired by these dreamlands that Lovecraft created. Uh, in fact, Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft were very good friends. Uh, they, uh, they often wrote letters to each other about the stuff that they were working on. So, uh, it, it definitely makes sense that Robert E. Howard would use some of the ideas that his friend had come up with in his own stories. So, really fascinating stuff. Um, coincidentally enough also, Conan's first appearance is in Weird Tales. So, uh, that's another nice little, Thing there uh, between these two. So I uh, thoroughly enjoy The White Shape. I'm going to read it. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to hear me read it, you can stop this right now. You can uh, comment on this episode on Twitter at Geekvine. You can uh, let Michael from Texas know. He's at MD Sparkman. And uh, this show is at Bibliolab1. So uh, check that out and check all the other episodes out. But now I'm going to read to you The White Ship by H.P. Lovecraft. I am Basil Elton, keeper of the North Point light that my father and grandfather kept before me. Far from the shore stands a gray lighthouse, above sunken slimy rocks that are seen when the tide is low, but unseen when the tide is high. Past that beacon for a century have swept the majestic barks of the seven seas. In the days of my grandfather there were many, in the days of my father not so many, and now there are so few that I sometimes feel strangely alone, as though I were the last man on our planet. From far shores came those white-sailed argosies of old, from far eastern shores where warm suns shine and sweet odors linger about strange gardens and gay temples. The old captains of the sea came often to my grandfather and told him of these things, which in turn he told to my father, and my father told me, in the long autumn evenings when the wind howled eerily from the east. And I have read more of these things, and of many things besides, in the books men gave me when I was young and filled with wonder. But more wonderful than the lore of old men and the lore of books and the secret lore of ocean, blue, green, gray, white, or black, smooth, ruffled, or mountainous, that ocean is not silent. All my days have I watched it and listened to it, and I know it well. At first I told to me only the plain little tales of calm beaches and near ports, but with the years it grew more friendly and spoke of other things, of things more strange and more distant in space and time. Sometimes at twilight the gray vapors of the horizon have parted to grant me glimpses of the ways beyond, and sometimes at the night the deep waters of the sea have grown clear and phosphorescent to grant me glimpses of the ways beneath. And these glimpses have been as often of the ways that were and the ways that might be, and as the ways that are for ocean is more ancient than the mountains, and frightened with the memories and the dreams of time. 
Out of the south it was that the white ship used to come when the moon was full and high in the heavens. Out of the south it would glide very smoothly and silently over the sea. And whether the sea was rough or calm, and whether the whelm was friendly or adverse, it would always glide smoothly and silently, its sails distant, and its long, strange tiers of oars moving rhythmically. One night I espied upon the deck of a man, bearded and robed, and he seemed to beckon me to embark for fair unknown shores. Many times afterwards I saw him under the full moon, and never did he beckon me. Very brightly did the moon shine on the night I answered the call, and I walked out over the waters to the white ship on a bridge of moonbeams. The man who had beckoned now spoke a welcome to me in a soft language I seemed to know well, and the hours were filled with soft songs of the oarsmen as we glided into the mysterious south, golden with the glow of that full mellow moon. And when the day dawned, rosy and effulgent, I beheld the green shore of far lands, bright and beautiful, and to me, unknown. Up from the sea rose lordly terraces of verdure tree-studded, and showing here and there in gleaming white roofs and colonnades of strange temples. As we drew near the green shore, the bearded man told me of that land, the land of Tsar, where dwell all the dreams and thoughts of beauty that come to men once and then are forgotten. And then I looked upon the terraces again, and I saw that what he said was true. For among the sights before me were many things I had once seen through the mist beyond the horizon and in the phosphorescent depths of ocean. There too were forms and fantasies more splendid than any I had ever known, and visions of young poets who died in want before the world could learn of what they had seen and dreamed. But we did not set foot upon the sloping meadows of Tsar, for it is told that he who treads there may never more return to his native shore. As the white ship sailed silently from the templed terraces of Tsar, we beheld on the distant horizon ahead the spires of a mighty city. And the bearded man said to me, This is Thalurion, the city of a thousand wonders, wherein resides all the mysteries that man can striven in vain and to fathom. And I looked again at close range and saw that the city was greater than any city I had known or dreamed of before. Into the sky the spires of its temples reached so that no man might hold their peaks. And far back beyond the horizon stretched the grim gray walls over which one might spy only a few roofs, weird and ominous, yet adorned with rich friezes and alluring sculptures. I yearned mightily to enter this fascinating and repellent city, and besought the bearded man to land me on the stone pier by the huge carven gate Akariel, but he gently denied my wish, saying, Into Telerion, the city of a thousand workers. Many have passed, but none have returned. Therein walk only demons and mad things that are no longer men, and the streets are white with the unburied bones of those who have looked upon the Adolon Lothi, that reign over the city. So the white ship sailed on past the walls of Thalerion, and followed for many days a southward flying bird, whose glossy plumage matched the sky out of which it had appeared. Then came we to a pleasant coast, gay with blossoms of every hue, where as far inland as we could see, vast lovely groves and radiant arbors beneath the meridian sun. From bowers beyond delicious that I urged the rowers onward on my eagerness to reach the scene, and the bearded man spoke no word, but watched me as we approached the lily-lined shore. Suddenly a wind blowing from over the flowery meadows and leafy woods brought a scent at which I trembled. The wind grew stronger, 
the air was filled with the lethal charnel odor of plague-stricken towns and uncovered cemeteries. And as we sailed madly away from that damnable coast, the bearded man spoke at last, saying, This is Zura, the land of pleasures unattained. So once more the white ship followed the bird of heaven, once warm blessed seas, fanned by caressing aromatic breezes. Day after day and night after night did we sail when the moon was full, we would listen to soft songs of the oarsmen, sweet as on that distant night when we sailed away from my far native land. And it was by moonlight that we anchored at last in the harbor of Sonanil, which is guarded by twin headlands of crystal that rise from the sea and meet in a resplendent arch. This is the land of fancy, and we walked to the verdant shore upon a golden bridge of moonbeams. In the land of Sonanil there was neither time nor space, neither suffering nor death. And there I dwelt for many eons. Green are the groves and pastures, bright and fragrant the flowers, blue and musical the streams, clear and cool the mountains, and stately and gorgeous the temples, castles, and cities of Sonanil. Of that land there is no bound, for beyond each vista of beauty rises another more beautiful. Of the countryside and amidst the splendor, of cities rove at the will happy folk, of whom all are gifted in unmarred grace and unalloyed happiness. For the eons that I dwelt there, I wandered blissfully through gardens, where quaint pagodas peep from pleasing clumps of bushes, and where the white walks are bordered with delicate blossoms. I climbed gentle hills, from whose summits I could see entrancing panoramas of loveliness, with steeple towns nestling in verdant valleys, and with the golden domes of gigantic cities glistening in the indefinitely distant horizon. And I viewed by moonlight the sparkling sea, the crystal headlands, and the placid harbor wherein lay the anchored white ship. It was against the full moon one night in the immemorial year of Tharp that I saw outlined beckoning form of the celestial bird and felt the stirrings of unrest. Then I spoke with the bearded man and told him of my yearning to depart for remote Cathuria, which no man has seen, but which all believe to lie beyond the basalt pillars of the West. It is the land of hope, and in it shine the perfect ideals of all that we know elsewhere, or at least so men relate. But the bearded man said to me, Beware of those peerless seas wherein men say Cathuria lies. In Sonanil there is no pain nor death, but who can tell what lies beyond the basalt pillars of the West? Nevertheless, at the next view full moon, I boarded the ship, and with the reluctant bearded man left the happy harbor for untraveled seas. And the bird of heaven flew before and led us towards the bastard pillars of the west, but this time the oarsmen sang no soft songs under the full moon. In my mind I would often picture the unknown land of Cathuria and its splendid groves and palaces, and would wonder what new delights there awaited me. Cathuria, I would say to myself is the abode of gods, the land of unnumbered cities of cold. Its forests are of aloe and sandalwood, even as the fragrant groves of Cormoran, and among the trees flutter gay birds sweet with song. On the green and flowery mountains of Cathuria stand temples of pink marble, rich with carven and painted glories, and having in their courtyards cool fountains of silver, where pearl with ravishing music the scented waters that come from the grotto-born river Narg. 
and the cities of Cathuria are cinctured with golden walls, and their pavements are also of gold. In the gardens of the cities are strange orchids and perfumed lakes, whose beds are of coral and amber. At night the streets and the gardens are lit with gay lanthems, fashioned from the three-colored shell of the tortoise. And here resound the soft notes of the singer and the lutenist. And the houses of the cities of Cathuria are all palaces, each built over a fragrant canal, bearing the waters of the sacred Narg. Of marble and porphyry are the houses, and roofed with glittering gold that reflects the rays of the sun, and entrances the splendors of the city as blissful gods view them from the distant peaks. Fairest of all is the palace of the great monarch Dariab, whom some say to be a demigod and others a god. High is the palace of Doriab, and many are the turnets of marble upon its walls. In the wide halls many multitudes assemble, and there hang the trophies of the ages, and the roof is of pure gold, set upon tall pillars of ruby and azure, and having such carbon figures of gold, of gods, and heroes, that he who looks up to those heights seems to gaze upon the living Olympus, and the floor of the palace is of glass, under which to flow the cunningly lightened waters of the Narg, gay with gaudy fish not known beyond the bounds of lovely Cathoria. Thus would I speak to myself of Cathoria, but never would the bearded man warn me to turn back to the happy shores of Sonaril, for Sonaril is known of men, while none hath ever beheld Cathoria. And on the thirty-first day that we followed the bird, we beheld the basalt pillars of the west, shrouded in mist they were, so that no man might peer beyond them or see their summits, which indeed some say reach even to the heavens. And the bearded man again implored me to turn back, but I heeded he not, for from the mist beyond the basalt pillars I fancied there came the notes of singer and lutenist, sweeter than the sweetest songs of Sonanil, and the sounding mine own praises, the praises of me, who had voyaged far under the full moon, and dwelt in the land of fancy. So to the sound of melody the white ship sailed into the mist betwixt the basil's pillars of the west, and when the music ceased and the mist lifted, we beheld not the land of Cathuria, but a swift, rushing, resistless sea, over which our helpless bark was home towards some unknown goal. Soon to our ears came the distant thunder of failing waters, and to our eyes appeared on the far horizon ahead the titanic spray of a monstrous cataract, wherein the oceans of the world dropped down to abysmal nothingness. Then did the bearded man say to me with tears on his cheek, We have rejected the beautiful land of Sonanil, which we may never behold again. The gods are greater than men, and they have conquered and I closed my eyes before the crash that I knew would come, shutting out the sight of the celestial bird which flapped its mocking blue wings over the brink of the torrent. Out of the crash came darkness, and I heard the shrieking of men and of things which were not men. From the east tempestuous winds arose, and chilled me as I crouched on the slab of damp stone which had risen beneath my feet. Then as I heard another crash I opened my eyes and beheld myself upon the platform of that lighthouse, from whence I had sailed so many eons ago. In the darkness below, there loomed the vast, blurred outlines of a vessel breaking up on the cruel rocks. And as I glanced out over the waste, I saw the light had failed for the first time since my grandfather had assumed its care. And in the later watches of the night, when I went within the tower, I saw on the wall a calendar 
which still remained as when I had left it at the hour I sailed away. With the dawn I descended the tower and looked for wreckage upon the rocks, but what I found was only this, a strange dead bird whose hue was of the azure sky, and a single shattered spar of a whiteness greater than that of the wave tips or of the mountain snow. And therefore the ocean told me its secrets no more, and though many times since as the moon shone full and high in the heavens, the white ship from the south came never again. (laughs) 